Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm pleased to continue the series of Good God episodes on good politics. And to help us with that today, uh, we're welcoming back to Good God, Jeremy Everett, who is the Executive Director of the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty, uh, also the Texas Hunger Initiative. I'm not sure exactly how they work together, Jeremy, but uh, goodness, we thank you for being with us again and talking with us about the political aspect, advocacy work, especially in relationship to matters of hunger. Uh, this is your sweet spot, and uh, it's always good to talk with you. Well, it's great to be here with you, George. I uh, appreciate the work that you do um, in this space, not only with your congregation, but, uh, but, but for the world at large and uh, helping point us towards uh, our, common, our, our, our common humanity um, and, and helping us to find common ground so that ultimately you know, we can make, a, make it a better world for, uh, for everybody who lives in it. So thank, thanks, for, thanks for the invitation. Well, so we're going to get into the question of how we find solutions and how we encourage people to be involved. But uh, we, we still have a world, Jeremy, that we live in that is uh, not yet flourishing for everyone, right? Where access to uh, housing and to food and to uh, jobs and those sorts of things are still, uh, well, it's still inadequate uh, for many, many people. And so uh, your specific space, of course, is hunger and the elimination of it. I mean, really just the, the goal is not just to improve, but to eliminate hunger. Why do we have a hunger problem in a country like ours, Jeremy? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, uh, many, many of my colleagues have, have spent their lives trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we've identified is that uh, the primary cause of hunger in the U.S. is underemployment, meaning that people are working uh, the majority of people who are eligible uh, for federal nutrition programs, for example, are actually employed, but they're underemployed, meaning that they make minimum wage. Uh, and so they are, are trying to put together as many hours as they possibly can to make ends meet. Now, if you're on a minimum wage uh, income in Texas and you were able to get 40 hours of work a week, 52 weeks out of the year, you're still only looking at grossing about $15,000 a year. On a place like Dallas, even in a place like Waco, that's not enough for rent, much less all your other expenses. And so, uh, so underemployment is the primary cause to food insecurity in the U.S. And one other little caveat about underemployment is it leads to income volatility. And that's something that we've really uh, taken a deep dive into since the pandemic hit. And essentially what income volatility is, is that if you remember, we, almost all of us have worked an hourly wage paying job at some point in our lives. Right. And you can remember that you didn't determine what hours you work. You know, your shift supervisor or whoever's in charge determines how many hours you're going to get and when you're going to work. And uh, if you can't go to work consistently at the hours that they assign to you, you're going to lose your job. And so since some weeks you might get 20 hours of work a week, the next week you might get 10, the next week you might get 15. It, it means that your income is, is unpredictable. And so that leads to income volatility, meaning that week to week, you don't know how much money you're going to make. And so on a monthly basis, you can't plan for all of your expenses. 
Um, it also makes it hard to cobble together two or three jobs because oftentimes those shifts end up competing with each other. And so inevitably you can't keep all two or three jobs on a consistent basis. And so, uh, so underemployment and income volatility are two of the driving forces and hunger in the U.S. Let's just, let's just pause there for a moment because I think it's important given what you've just said to note uh, that there's a lot of conversation around raising the minimum wage, uh, which uh, is of course uh, an agenda item for Democrats generally, and it is uh, uh, not on the agenda at all for Republicans at this time because of the fact that there is always a, a, a kind, of, kind of balance that the marketplace is seeking. And that is between what does it cost to employ people uh, to do your work versus you know, what, what do you have to do? Uh, in other words, if you're a, an employer, you, you wanna get the least amount of labor costs in order to make the most profit. But at the same time, uh, here's a place where policy comes into being, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if you leave it to the marketplace, you get something like where we are today. If minimum wage were only to have grown linked to the inflation rate since 1968, today's $7.25 uh, minimum wage would be a little more than $10 instead of $7.25. If it were tied to the increase in productivity of American workers, it would be somewhat north of $15. And if it were tied to average wage gain of all Americans over the same period of time, currently it would be more than $21 an hour. So imagine that your point about underemployment and volatility of wages, what would a worker working 40 hours a week at minimum wage be able to do if the income were tripled? Simply tripled, uh, automatically you just changed the entire scope of the hunger problem in America, huh? Uh, that's right. That's right. I, I think what we have to, when we think about, when we think about good politics, and we think about issues of hunger and and how that's uh, directly tied to economic security and economic opportunity, mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of thoughts. First, it's recognizing that as 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 people, as human beings, walking and breathing on this planet that almost everything we do has political implications. Yes. Well, what we eat, how we eat, where we shop, when we shop, uh, what clicks we, you know, what, what we like on social media, um, what social media outlets we use. Almost everything we do is inherently political, not just voting, right? Right. And so... I think that that's an important. I think that's an important framework. I think for us at the collaborative, at the Baylor Collaborative, we're trying to th think through. Okay, uh, hunger is is a socially unacceptable condition. Right. You know that that uh, you can essentially identify the health and well being of a society based upon the prevalence and the severity of hunger. Mm. So if you have widespread hunger, um, and it is and it is incredibly severe. 
then chances are good that the rest of your society um, is, is struggling in a, in a significant way. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, that's regardless of a pandemic. I think what we've seen in the U.S. is that we've, we've never in, 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 in modern American history, so I would say modern American history, really thinking post-civil rights era, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so really kind of 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000s. Uh, the lowest that we've seen food insecurity rates decline to was 11.1%. And that was shortly before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, it, it, it jumped over 23%. I think what we as people of faith can say is one, you know, our Catholic brothers and sisters have a right to food. And I think that's something that we need to adopt on the Protestant side of the house. We need to recognize that, that food shouldn't be a negotiable item based upon where you live, what race you are. Uh, whether or not you've had a family member that's been incarcerated, whether wrongfully or rightfully, like uh, it shouldn't be linked to, uh, um, you know, even even uh, consistent employment um, because not everybody has access to consistent employment. Uh, you think about people that live in, in areas that are, uh, you know, that, that might be big summer spots and they work in the vacation industry or whatever, you know, they, they don't always have gainful employment consistently. All that to say, what I think we can determine as a society is what is the best way to ensure that people have access to food, to, to three healthy meals a day, no matter who they are or where they live. And so, as you mentioned, the minimum wage is, is directly tied to that. Yeah. Um, and, and we have to decide, is it, uh, you know, so what, what's the vehicle to ensure that people have uh, the resources they need um, to live an active, healthy lifestyle. And do we do that through minimum wage or do we do that through increasing, you know, programs like SNAP and putting more resources on a, on a SNAP card? I think what unfortunately has been negotiable for too long is, is it's like, yeah, we're, we're really not going to put more money on a SNAP card and we're not going to raise the minimum wage. Right. And we're not really going to do anything to, to ensure access to health care. And we're not really going to do anything to strengthen public schools in these low-income neighborhoods. And so, instead of instead of instead of having a uh, almost a new contract on, for America, saying that that it, it, it that we're going to have to ensure that everybody's uh, you know taken care of that their basic needs are met, um, we've we've continued to suppress opportunity uh, for for families that are in poverty. And and uh, and we're paying for it. We're paying for it right now. I mean, to, to, you know, uh, our food insecurity right now is is upwards of twenty three percent this year um, because of COVID. And we know that a lot of the families that are food insecure also didn't have health care um, right. during the pandemic, and they were more likely to um, be adversely affected by COVID nineteen. So right. So so we have a constellation of factors that contribute to poverty. And poverty uh, is the single overriding factor in hunger and in other social ills as well, including uh, drug use, including criminality, in, including you know all the the, the social ills uh, that come from hopelessness. Right. So the question is, how do we how do we address that systemically? And I think when we Consider all the options. You know there there are uh, the there's the option of let the marketplace handle it, okay? Because the market 
is the most efficient means of distributing goods and services. Uh, this is basically an American business principle or economic principle. But we also know that there is nobody who has a hand on the market the way, say, for instance, a managed economy in China would be. Uh, instead, our market is, is, is relatively free with limited regulation by government. So there's gonna be gaps as a result of that. Those gaps then have to be filled in somehow, right? And historically, those gaps are filled in mainly by charity work, nonprofits, among which is your work, uh, for example, but food banks and uh, you know, other kinds of benevolence kind of organizations. And, and then the third is, is government. So you've got, you've got these three factors. Now, government seems to be something that for people of faith, generally, in it, especially, you know, you and I have been in the Baptist tradition, really suspect uh, in terms of what role the government should play, uh, even if we are the government, right? right? So if you're making the case to people about good politics, I think everybody gets that the market has a role to play and that charity has a role to play. Uh, I would argue that maybe charity should play a different role than it actually does currently. Uh, we could have that discussion also, but what, what role would you say to people of faith is a legitimate godly role for government to play in eradicating hunger and in being a partner in this three-legged stool? Uh, great question. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say a couple of thoughts. First, um, you know, at, at, at the collaborative, one of the things that we talk about is that hunger and poverty are too big for any one organization or one sector or even one political party to end by themselves. Good. That it inherently requires the public sector uh, and the private sector and the private sector representing corporate America, representing faith communities in America, representing the nonprofit sector, uh, you know, everybody that's not government, essentially, that it requires all of these organizations working in concert with government if we want to move towards sustainable social change. And that inherently has to be bipartisan. I think one of the things that we can observe um, from Obamacare is that, uh, you know, as, as well-intentioned as Obamacare was, and I mean, it, it, it increased access to health care by 30 million, you know, for 30 million Americans. That's incredible. And that is an incredible success. But in a state like Texas, we didn't we didn't expand Medicaid. Right. States like Mississippi, they didn't expand Medicaid. You know, in Oklahoma, they didn't expand Medicaid. And so, uh, and so the people who are the most uh, in the most difficult financial circumstances in our state still didn't benefit from that. And because Republicans didn't buy into Obamacare from the beginning, they spent the last better part of the decade trying to undo it. Right. And so, you know, is that sustainable social change? You know, I think that that's one of the things that we have to determine, you know, as people of faith is, is to determine, okay, how do we build bipartisan support for a pro-justice agenda? Yes. Because as people, as Christians, uh, well, people from all faith traditions, but, but Christians specifically, I'll speak from our, uh, for, from our context, is that 
justice is a non-negotiable. Yes. It is an absolute non-negotiable. We decided as largely a white church um, during the, during the, uh, the era of slavery that we would uh, bifurcate uh, justice in, 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 in the work that, that needs to happen uh, to ensure that everybody has food to eat and, and health care and, and housing and all of the things that are our core of our faith. We, we decided to pull that apart from saving souls right. because we didn't want slaves to feel empowered to be able to have agency um, in, inside of their uh, inside of the plantation. Right. And so we, we, we intentionally ripped that apart. I think what we're recognizing now in the 21st century is that that was not acceptable and that we have built a tradition that is dying in part because of that, uh, because of what we did yes. 300 years ago. Yes. And so if we don't cobble back saving souls and justice together, then the white church in America will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. So justice is a, as an absolute core responsibility um, that, that we have to work towards. I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that we need to do this in as bipartisan of a capacity as possible. And, uh, and certainly that's what we're trying to do as a part of the Baylor Collaborative is work in a bipartisan capacity and, and get both sides to identify some common ground, whether that's the minimum, increasing the minimum wage or strengthening SNAP or figuring out creative ways that we can uh, increase access to summer meals for kids, you know, across America, that, 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 that they understand that from where we sit, that, that, uh, that people experiencing hunger is, is not socially acceptable and that we are, uh, we are bent on doing everything in our power to try to end that problem. So I'm getting a little preachy and, uh, no, no, but we, this we, is, we, we love it when you get preachy. So uh, this, this is, I think it's important, though, also for us to perhaps acknowledge some of the accusations out there that undermine uh, the SNAP and, and uh, you know, the, the government programs that help. There is, there is a sense that people have, uh, and, and I think it, it has a kind of echo ring from slavery days, right, that if uh, the, the Bible verse that's quoted is, if a person will not work, that person should not eat, right? And there is an assumption that if you're giving food from the government, uh, that you are undermining a work ethic and that, that people will be happy just to stay on the dole, okay? So I, I think probably what we need to acknowledge is that you can cherry pick people in every category of American society and say, look there, that's characteristic of that. And we can do that for rich people as well as for poor people, right? But if, if, if you were listening to that kind of, uh, of, of conversation of people who would say, you know, we need, we, we need to get people off of SNAP, get them off of welfare because it's just perpetuating uh, th- this, this mentality of, of being takers. Uh, what would your response to that be, Jeremy? Well, you know, I, I think uh, um, to kind of uh, build upon what I was saying before, you know, so justice is a non-negotiable uh, for, for us who are coming from the Christian tradition. Um, you know, again, how we make justice 
a reality is negotiable. Mm-hmm. What we know in our country and, and in the evolution of our country is that government plays the primary role in addressing inequity. Yes. It always has. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the church can echo support for it. It can condemn it. But the government plays the primary role. Mm-hmm. When you look at most of the charitable organizations in your community, right. uh, if it is an organization that is that has, you know, that, that is doing the most good in your community, you know, by sheer volume, chances are good that at least 80% of their funding is federal funding. Right. And so what churches donate and what individuals donate is typically the cream, you know, but but the actual meat, the 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 majority of their budgets are funded through federal funds. And so um, so you have to have, if you're going to end hunger, you have to have a strong government response as well as a strong faith community response, a strong corporate response, right. a strong nonprofit response. Now, when, when Christians talk about it, you don't work, you don't eat. You know, I mean, we, we love to, as your point, cherry pick passages um, that absolve us of our guilt. Right. We all know inherently at the core of our being that we are responsible for our brothers and sisters who are in poverty. And so we can try to come up with as many arguments as we possibly can, but really we're speaking to ourselves when we're trying, when we're quoting, you you don't work, you don't eat. That's really us trying to absolve our own, our own uh, guilt that we feel um, maybe because we're living too lavish of a lifestyle. You know, maybe, maybe we know that we're, uh, that, that uh, we are using the resources that maybe God uh, intended for the community um, that we have kind of uh, consolidated in, within our own little space. So I, I would say that I think that, that that's principle to know about it. But, you know, I wrote a book on Matthew 25. And, and then here, you know, Jesus, it's the only eschatological uh, scene in the entire gospel of Matthew. Right. The only one. Jesus returns and he is returned as the king and he assembles all people before him. Um, and he begins to separate them, the sheep and the goats, the righteous from the accused. And to the astonishment of the people gathered, the criterion for judgment wasn't confession of faith in Christ. It was whether or not you acted with love and cared for the needy. And those acts weren't just extra credit, but they constituted the decisive criterion for judgment. Basically, if you fed the hungry, you were going to live, and he was welcoming you into the place um, that was prepared from you uh, from the from the foundation of the world, right? But if you didn't, you know, then you were cast out. Jesus also associates himself with people who are hungry and thirsty and naked and an immigrant and so forth in that passage. He calls those the, that group of people members of his family, right? And you and I and the rest of us are judged based upon what we do or not do, didn't do to serve members of his family. So I think that's, that's important. For, for that to be the only eschatological scene in the entire gospel of Matthew, our go-to gospel, right? Uh, I think that, that tells us something about uh, the priorities of, of the kingdom as Jesus saw it. And if we believe Jesus is God's son, then that certainly should have direct implications for how we live. So before we wrap up this conversation and before we get to the final judgment day, uh, <laughs> right. let, let, me, let me pretend that I am a person of faith in a pew and I've just heard you speak and I am convicted 
that I need to become actively involved as an advocate to eliminating hunger in my community, maybe in the world, uh, but let's just start out where we are. Uh, I don't know what to do, Jeremy. What, what do I do to become actively involved in being part of the solution here? What are the range of possibilities that you would recommend to me to become involved in? Yeah, uh, I'll give you three. Um, so first, proximity. Uh, Brian Stevenson says you can't solve a social problem from a distance. You have to have proximity to the problem. Good. And so I would encourage um, our, our uh, members of our congregation, your congregation, mine, you know, mem members of the Christian household and, and, and our other faith traditions that, that, are, uh, that we know are, are, are um, so important to our communities uh, to spend time with people who are experiencing hunger and poverty. Right. You get to know them and to listen to them and to believe what is being communicated to you. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a tendency when somebody is in a socioeconomic uh, class that is below ours to disbelieve what it is that they're communicating. We assume that they're trying to get one over on us or that, uh, um, uh, that, that maybe we're being taken advantage of, but, but to get to know them on their turf and, and to spend time with them is, is crucial and, and, and for us to be able to identify an actual solution to the problem. Good. Otherwise, uh, the solutions that we come up with are not going to work. Right. So that's one, that's one way. Second thing is uh, in, every, uh, in basically every community in the country, you have incredible people who are putting flesh uh, and, uh, on Jesus' command to feed the hungry. And go align yourself with them. You don't have to invent the wheel. Right. Uh, go, go find out where God is moving and join alongside in that. And then the third thing is to get to know your member of Congress and your elected officials in the local community. And, and one thing that I would encourage is that I've been preachy on this podcast. Yeah, I, 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 I can go there pretty, pretty easily. But to do the same thing, the same level of respect that you're going to provide, that you're going to um, um, have for somebody in poverty, have that, that same level of respect and, and willingness to listen to your elected official. They're just a human being just like you. Now, you might see them on the news periodically. Uh, you might disagree with everything that comes out of their mouth, but they're a human being created in God's image just like you. So go and spend time with them and get to know them, get to know what their priorities are, uh, get to know what they care about, and then to tell them about you. Tell them about what you care about. Tell them about some very practical steps that they can take in order to reduce hunger and poverty in your community. And if you're willing to commit yourself to that relationship and build it for the long haul, you'll be surprised at what you can accomplish. You might be able to take people who were previously antagonists to some of these issues and turn them into an ally in time because you cultivate trust. Um, and if you do that, uh, we can certainly make the world a better place. Well, thank you for all the work you do to make the world a better place. And we're grateful to know you and support you. Uh, Jeremy, it's always good to talk with you. And thank you for, again for being on Good God. Uh, it's always my pleasure. Uh, you, you ask great questions. Uh, and, and, and I love what you're doing to bend the world towards justice. Thank you so much. God bless. Take care, Jeremy. Thanks. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God. 
Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.